You're listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Matt Loverin and me, Jim Shamaria. Our goal is to start a conversation about life and leadership in the local church. Welcome back to the Pastoral Calling Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Jim. And we are coming to you live from the esteemed Biblical Studies office at Grace Bible College. I used to be in this office. Yeah, I remember that. And now you got your own office, but we got a nice exercise ball where Jake Rogers sits. We got a bunch of empty Coke bottles where Pat McGillicuddy sits. Don't forget the bobbleheads. And the bobbleheads. So this is a a great place for us to be uh, here today for episode 19, one episode away from the much-anticipated 20th episode of the Pastoral Calling Podcast, which will come approximately one year from the beginning of this podcast. When we set out, we were hoping to do about an episode every two weeks, Yep. but we knew that the holidays were going to happen, we knew that you and Natalie were going to have a baby, and so to get 20 episodes in a year, we're pretty thrilled about that, and hope that you all are thrilled as well. Yeah, and the podcast has kind of changed a little bit over this last few months, but hopefully it's still reaching our goal of, of giving a space for us to talk about some of the issues that come about in small churches and small church ministry, and um, hopefully feeling like you guys are getting something out of this. If you have any requests for episodes, we'd love to continue to hear from you so we can uh, talk about things that are helpful to you. That's kind of the goal here, not just about our own ministries. But speaking about ministries... Anything exciting happening over at uh, Grace Bible Fellowship these days? We had a really exciting weekend at Grace Bible Fellowship. Oh, yeah? And the reason for that is that we painted the children's hallway of our children's wing, and it was something special. What color? What colors? Oh. We went with three colors. Okay. A purple. Yes. A turquoise, Ooh. which really reminded me of how I dressed in the early 90s. I was going to say, both of those colors were like the colors of the early 90s. I think 90s. I had like matching shirt and pants <laughs> like with those colors. Sweatpants? We also have some lime green in there, which make, like softens the, okay. the early 90s feel. Kind of brings a Latin vibe. It's very bright. It's very cheerful. It's very energetic. That's great. Yeah. So what was the uh, the thing that made this project need to happen? The impetus, if yes. you will. I will. We felt that the children's hallway needed to be painted. (laughs) Why'd you paint the duck blue? (laughs) (laughs) But we really felt like the children's hallway needed to be a place that was more vibrant and exciting. It was just this really dull brown, like the walls of the rest rest of the church. I'd be for painting the whole rest of the church in bright, uh, like energetic colors, but... Um, because we are a church of mixed generations and mm-hmm. wanted to certainly highlight what's going on for the children and the youth, we felt like it's important to give them their own space and to say, if you go this way, then things get exciting. You go around the corner and it kind of progresses down the hallway. Yeah. You kind of go like older grades as you get down the hallway to the youth room, which is, is its own special space with the couches and the risers and the yeah. yeah its own paint job on the inside. And so you're kind of going further and further into the youth ministry as you go back into that room. Yeah, and it's funny how just something as simple as painting can make um, a certain group feel valued and feel like this is our church. This is not just where our parents go and we're tagging along, but this is important. So you guys just did it yourself. We got a crew together and some paintbrushes and... 
Well, we had a couple of resources. The first is our youth pastor, who uh, Josh Beefus, who works part-time for us as youth pastor, but he also does professional painting, oh, exterior painting. you had an inside man. So we had an inside man on the on getting the supplies, but also on like the skill. He's actually very, very skilled at doing painting and didn't want a team of people, didn't want a bunch of us right. who don't know what we're doing. Uh, so he was able to do the, the big job of the painting, and then uh, Becca Zuber, who actually works with me in graduate studies at Grace Bible College, she was able to come and kind of add the artistic touches of circles and swirls and nice patterns and um, was involved in the color selection and that type of thing. So the two of them working together yeah. really utilize the gifts of people in the church that's to, great. to do what they do best. Yeah, that's so uh, Pauline, right? <laughs> we hope let so. He, let he who paints paint wisely. Isn't that like Second Corinthians ninety five six or something like that? <laughs> uh, well, everyone was really thrilled with the paint. It seemed like as people were coming in, and they'll say, "Well, have you seen it?" and come and see. And all the kids were just really excited. Yeah, as they got to see that for the first time, and so it added a neat energy uh, to the Sunday morning. And I think that'll continue as people see it for the first time, and. Um, it was interesting when we talked about this in the in the council meeting. Like, are we going to do this? Like, really? And I said, Josh, just paint the children's hallway. I don't care what color it is. Just make the kids feel welcome, and know that like if anybody has a problem with this, they don't have a problem with you. They have a problem with the leadership of the church. Right. And so we kind of um, like to smash down dissent <laughs> from the beginning. Like, to, being unified as a church leadership is really, really important to yeah. us. Like whether we're dealing with an area of church discipline and something really heavy, or if we're dealing something with very, very minor, like do you yeah. paint the children's hallway? Um, people can get upset over the heavy stuff and the little stuff. So we come in at, we try to come at it with a strong sense of unity that says we're committed to this. This is why we're doing it. We're creating this welcoming environment for our kids they're going to feel valued, they're going to feel important, and it's going to benefit everyone. How could you possibly disagree with that? Well, that's I think it's so important to have that um, desire for unity across the spectrum of everything that you do as, as a church leadership. And like you said, whether it's big or little, to kind of be approaching it with that goal of we want to do this together as a unified leadership group. I think that's really key. And people pick up on that, and that becomes... Uh, part of the culture of the church as well. It moves beyond just the leadership. I know in our church, since I've been there at least, in the past there were some some bigger issues, but since I've been there, there haven't really been any major issues, and that's because we've created a culture where people, you know, you get those people who just like fighting and like arguments and they like to live in tension. I think they learn pretty quickly that we don't do that at our church, and they just go and find another place, which is which is fine, and I think having that unity from a leadership perspective as elders, deacons, uh, and then moving down to the congregation, I think really communicates something. It does, and it creates a sense of community identity. This is how we do things. And it also creates momentum, I think, for, for accomplishing whatever it is you want to accomplish as a local church so that people have a sense of we're we're going this way together whether it's big things or small things and there's a leadership that's unified and I can trust that how do you do that how do you like maybe not with the painting but if there are big issues that come up in your in your leadership and your elders say I think this way I think another way 
how does your church and your community deal with that? What's the role that Caleb, your pastor, plays in that? Does he kind of act as a mediator, or how does that work for you guys? I think the pastor's role is huge in that position of guiding the leadership. Yeah. Because even if you have kind of a biblical eldership model of the elders are all shared, sharing Mm -hmm. this responsibility of leading the church together, most of the time your elders and especially your lay people are going to look to the pastor as the man, mm-hmm. the the guy who mm-hmm. knows what God wants for this group of people. Right. Whether that's true or not, right. people have that default setting to right. the authority and leadership of the pastor. And I'm not sure if that comes from just our humanity, like wanting to see one leader kind of at the, the top of the mm-hmm. pyramid, or if that comes from, you know, like church history and that's the way the Baptists did it for 250 I think years. A, I think a big part of it is that's the the person you see on stage every Sunday. That's the person who is preaching to you. He's the person that is establishing authority through visitation and exploring scripture. And so whether or not on paper the pastor's opinion is any better or greater or less than anyone else, I think that just that pastoral role or that pastoral vocation kind of earns that in a way. And especially once you've been at a church in one place for four or five years and you start to get that sense of living life together with the people, um, that authority just grows and grows as you share life together with that, with that congregation. So when it comes to the big issues as elders, we're always a team and we're always meeting, but um, we understand those dynamics that the people are going to be looking to the pastor for that upfront leadership. Yeah. And then what happens is that our pastor, because he is a younger man, comes to us and says, well, what do you all think? I don't want to drive forward on this unless mm-hmm. it seems like it's God's will for the whole church. He's really careful to not get out in front of yeah. the leadership of the rest of the church. He's very patient in that way and, and does drive us forward, but there's a give and take yeah. um, so that that becomes more of a free flow of ideas and not one person's agenda. Yeah. And that's, you know, when it comes to pastoral ministry, just like anything, there's so many personality issues. And I think we all know some pastors who are a little bit more, I don't say abrasive in a negative sense, but a little more driven. And this is how... I feel this needs to happen, and so we're going to make it happen. And then there's other pastors who are more or team-oriented and want to see um, things happen in that way. And so I think it, it that really takes shapes the church's identity. Not one of those is bad or good. Um, they're just different ways of, of doing it. And I think as long as everyone is connected to the moving of the Holy Spirit and, and how God is at work in the church and in the lives of the people, I think that it can be an effective way to lead. Absolutely. One of the things that we try to do at our church is protect our pastors from the congregation to mm-hmm. a certain extent. So when you come to those more important decisions or those weightier matters or areas where there's bound to be some disagreement or some turmoil in the life of people based on decisions that you're making. We try to say, okay, Pastor Caleb or Pastor Josh, who's a youth pastor, you kind of 
hand this one off to us, yeah. and we'll be the heavies as lay elders so that you can continue to minister to everyone who might be affected by this decision, and you're not on a particular side. Yeah. So that's one specific strategy that we've tried to do a couple of times now to insulate our pastors mm-hmm. and their leadership from criticism of the rest of the congregation. And it seems to have worked. I guess I don't, if it hasn't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think is so interesting and what I found is some some people may critique a leadership decision. Like I just recently had lunch with a good friend of mine. We were talking about different decisions and he was a little bit critical of, of some of the things that we were doing as a church. And it was all in good nature and, and you know we were, we were just talking about things in a serious mature level but from his perspective he was critiquing the church as a thing or the leadership of a church as an object objective thing but for me as someone who my identity is so wrapped up in my vocational calling as a pastor it sometimes can be very difficult to separate a critique of a church decision from a personal critique of me, right? Because my ministry and my leadership and the direction that I'm, I feel like I'm leading the church is so interwoven in who I am um, that it can sometimes be difficult to hear those critiques. People are not meaning to personally critique you and who you are at the core of your person. Uh, but that, for for those of us who really are connected to our vocation, you know, like like most pastors are, um, that can be kind of a difficult thing. And so being able to have that support of your elder board uh, in those situations, I think is really important just for the, the pastor, the pastor's own personal sense of value and worth and emotional uh, health. Yeah, maybe. right. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Because you are, as a pastor, opening up your heart really to this community, um, preaching every week, right? You're opening yourself up and exposing yourself to the potential for failure mm-hmm. in a particular message, in a particular point of your sermon, right? In getting something wrong, in in teaching or leading, or how you said it to that one person at right. one time. Yeah, I mean, there's just from a, a, a preaching perspective there's a lot of ways that that this idea of like failure comes into play because there are so many people in your church that have deep theological convictions or maybe are former pastors themselves or have a lot of theological training that if you maybe misspeak or reference something slightly wrong um, there could be this critique of oh well my pastor doesn't know his theology or his bible correctly and there's this sense of of failure in that i think that's kind of what uh, craig mcdonald was talking about a few year, few years ago or a few episodes ago when he was seems like years ago. seems like years when he was talking about just really holding on to the sermon and and kind of the emotional weight of that but there's also the reality that hopefully I, or at least I have found that my most effective sermons are the ones that come out of a place of deep personal searching and reading and prayer and conviction, preaching to myself before I preach to my congregation. But there's always the opportunity then for you to not do the things that you're calling your congregation to do. 
and there's there's failure in that aspect that really kind of can come out and that that's really a, a difficult thing as a pastor is to like how do you deal with those things how do you how do we deal with with failures how do we deal with whether it's not living up to things that we're teaching saying something wrong or messing something up or maybe on a bigger scale how do we deal with ministries that we're all gung-ho about and saying this is the way that we're going and this is what we need to do and then they just don't work like what does that look like and i think that's a, a a challenge for a lot of pastors but it's important things for us to talk about and think about because we're so deeply invested in the ministry those failures can be devastating even the small ones even right. the the mistakes of a phrase or mistakes right. of a word and we have to find ways of like pastor craig said of letting that go mm-hmm. or sloughing that off or um bracketing it somehow yeah but the bigger ones like like failures of a whole ministry or failures yeah. of a program or you know we we all know people who have gone through major moral failures in ministry yeah. or they lose their ministry or they're coming back to the ministry after many years because they've been away from it whatever that looks like and how we tell the story of that becomes a really important part of the pastoral identity yeah i'm thinking of um one of our sister churches right outside of chicago um called hilltop which has been a church in that community for several years and for those of us here in Grand Rapids who are just a few hours away, a lot of us have kind of had a little bit of connection. You've had kind of a stronger connection than most, but we've just seen this church kind of just, I don't know, slowly <laughs> shrinking, not only in size, but also in influence and in the way that um, the members are growing. It didn't seem like there was a lot of movement there uh, in, in a healthy way. Until just a couple months ago, uh, they decided to finally close close the church. And I think for a lot of us looking at that, like, what do we do with that? That's in many ways a failed church. You know, some people could look at that and say, well, that church failed to do what it was supposed to do. Um, and so, I don't know, what, it, what have your thoughts been about that whole ministry and, and what's going on there? It's really such a an interesting situation and a heart-wrenching situation. As you mentioned, I think we went down there together like seven or eight years ago when this church was first without a pastor and we took like Josh and Mm -hmm. Stephen and Nathan English. We all went down together and we stayed in the parsonage and we took over their whole service. And that was my first connection with that church. Actually, my very first connection with the church was uh, with a girl that I went to college with and she and her husband were married in that church and I was Mm. there for that wedding. That was 20 years ago. So seven or eight years ago, we all went down there and started doing some ministry. And we would preach and drive down. And and Michelle and I would drive down with our kids. And we'd stay in the parsonage on Saturday night and go into the city during the day on Saturday. And then do their sermon for them. And and the kids would read the Bible and stuff like that. And they loved having our kids there because they hadn't seen kids in their church in 10 or 15 years. And so it just took them back to the old days. But it really was a church that was stuck in the old days. Mm-hmm. They thought, still thought of themselves, even though they were down to 15 or 20 members, they still thought of themselves as the church that they were 15 or 20 years ago. 
And having been without a pastor for seven or eight years, they finally just were unsustainable as a community. The, the congregation was aging to the point where they couldn't physically make it to church on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to be in the doctor or in the hospital the rest of the week. And so they weren't just weren't able to be a church. So I was actually there at the congregational meeting where they decided to vote to, to close the doors. And I facilitated that. I didn't vote, but I helped them work through hmm. that whole grieving process of yeah. we are losing the church. One lady in the church offered to buy the church because she wanted it to continue to keep meeting. Like, I've got money in the bank. I'll <laughs> buy the church. And we're like, that's not the issue. It's <laughs> not the church is financially insolvent. It's just that it, it yeah. seems to be at the end of its life. Yeah. And so what, what happened? They voted to close the church, and in the constitution of Hilltop Bible Church, the property, if the church is to be dissolved, was to be deeded to Grace Bible College. So now Grace Bible College becomes the owner of this church plot, big parking lot, big parsonage. I mean, it's a decent plot in suburban Chicago, and could be worth a lot of money to the right Mm -hmm. congregation. And so actually because of my connections with the church was picked as part of a team to go down to Chicago and evaluate this site and see, do we want to plant a new church there for the grace gospel fellowship? Would it be a ministry site extension of grace Bible college? Uh, some kind of option C, none of the above. What does it look like? CrossFit gym <laughs> could be in an old church. <laughs> So we went down with a team a couple of weeks ago and really tried to scout the area, get a sense for the feel of the community and what this church's role was like in the community. What could it be? What does that community need? We talked to people at the schools, the community center, the library, um, the village offices. We went to a couple of local churches, the mega church that was just around the corner and really got the strong sense that that community would not respond well to a church plan. (laughs) Which probably on the surface was a little bit disappointing because I know when you guys went down there, that was kind of the the idea. It's like, this is what we want to do. Let's find out how to make it work. It's part of the strategic vision of the Grace Gospel Fellowship. We're going to plant new churches. And here's a church that seems to have closed, right? But maybe God can breathe new life into it and use this space, use this facility to do a new work. And we got the sense right away that that would be a grind. When you think about all the stuff that we've talked about on the podcast in the last year, all the Eugene Peterson stuff of needing to be embedded in your community, to really know the people that you're ministering to, to like understand all of their needs and what it's like to be in their neighborhood, for someone to come down and just enter into that and say, we're starting a church up from scratch, it's an older community. It's an established community. They don't do new. They don't do flashy. Right. <laughs> it would not be a, a typical, you know, bombastic kind of right. church growth style church plan. Right. And the facility is limited that the biggest that church gets without new construction is 60 people mm-hmm. or so, which is all that it's ever been. Right. And so it would really need somebody who is already a part of that culture. Like you said, already embedded in that community. I know that's still kind of a big question mark as to what happens with the Hilltop property and you guys are working through that. So maybe we'll get some updates in future episodes of, of where things stand. But sure. But, but coming back to what we were saying about failure, yeah. 
it seems like, from a human standpoint, that that ministry has failed. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine being a part of that congregation, living through the last 40 years of ministry in that church, coming to the end of that church's life, and then closing the doors and feeling anything other What do than, you do the next Sunday? <laughs> right. Know? And what do I do with the electric bill that keeps yeah. coming to me from the church? And I'm yeah. still paying the gas, and yeah. I'm still um, going and making sure that the lawn gets mowed and yeah. things like that. So it's like this grief that hangs with you, but it's ongoing because that, that property is still... You didn't have a chance to... No closure. No, you know, that's why funerals are so important for um, communities to mourn, is the actual event of putting something in the ground is... There's significance there because it says this this era of physically being with this person is no longer... But although it seems like the ministry has failed from a human standpoint, we're not sure what God is doing in that situation. And maybe that's a takeaway that we can kind of put a bow on this discussion of of failure is to learn to look at our failures like Paul does and, and look at those weaknesses and hardships and seeming failures as opportunities for the power of God to be put on display and to grow in ways that we otherwise couldn't and um, to not celebrate certainly our moral mistakes but our missteps and the times when we didn't have all of the information and maybe we could have communicated better and that results in a quote-unquote failure from a human standpoint but God's in all of that and his grace is always sufficient in that and I think Paul would even say that it's not until <laughs> there is failure that you fully experience this, the victory of God. Uh, I think that that really was the premise of his ministry is in our failure, Christ is put on display. And as long as we do everything right and don't put a foot wrong and say everything right, then that's us. Uh, but as soon as we allow God and Christ to, to work through us, through our failures, that's truly when um, the divine is made evident. And maybe that's something that we and our listening audience can all be praying about is to have eyes to see and ears to hear where are the inadequacies and where are the failures where I have to rely on God's grace rather than being sure that I've studied enough, that I've planned just to say it in just the right way. Uh, that I've talked to all the people in this situation to make sure that, you know, we're minimizing the damage that happens in whatever situation. Yeah. You know, it, crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's with the architect and the building plan. Yeah. Um, it's not all. It's not about all that stuff. Yeah. It's more about learning to live in God's grace and experience that in those ups and downs of ministry. Right. The The activeness of God in all things, I think is, is just critical for us to remember. And I think being in small churches, there is some ways that we are able to do that more because there is less planning sometimes, and there is less administration duty, and it is more engaging in the ministry. But at the same time, uh, I think we can also fall into the trap of if no one does it, we have to, if we don't do it, no one's going to do it. It's never going to get done. And so we spend so much time 
like you said, crossing the T's and dotting the I's, that uh, we create a ministry that's riding upon our success and riding upon our ability to achieve rather than um, facilitating God being at work. And leaving room for the grace of God in those mistakes that we're bound to make. If you're not making any mistakes, then either you're doing it all yourself, or, I mean, maybe you're that good, but none of us really are, if we're honest. Most of us are not that good. (laughs) The great 20th century theologian and ethicist H. Richard Niebuhr said it this way, respond to every situation as if God were acting in that situation. Because God is acting in Mm. that situation. And so we should develop a kind of responsibility that is a responsibleness to whatever God is doing, however unexpected that might be, in whatever circumstances of success or failure, because God's grace is acting on us in that. Right. I think that's a good place for us to, to leave this. So... In your ministry, if you're in a place right now where you're just kind of sitting in the ashes of failure, uh, take heart. God is present with you in those things. God is moving in those things. Uh, Find out how you can join him. Uh, If you're kind of at the top of the mountain right now in your ministry, uh, leave room for God to be at work. Leave room for your failure uh, so that God can continue to be at work. And let's all... As, uh, as servants, be aware and attuned to the way that God is moving in our lives and in our ministry and in our churches so that we can serve with him in those places. Story's not over. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back with episode 20 very soon. You've been listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Jim Shamaria and me, Matt Loverin. Join us every two weeks as we start a new conversation about life and leadership in the local church. If you like us, make sure you follow us on SoundCloud or on iTunes, and also tell all your friends so they can join the conversation.